0: and we're on greetings metalheads and welcome to another episode of here lies metal the podcast that brings you the origins history and culture of everything metal i am your host maledictus and i will be your overlord for today and all of eternity welcome now before we do the news i would like to give a shout out to a fan of the podcast who i just had a conversation with on the phone Christopher from Long Island uh, gave me a lot of insights and ideas and information about future episodes in metal history. He was actually almost like an eyewitness to the Ricky Casso story. He had given me a lot of feedback on um, the Satanic Panic episode. And um, living in Long Island, um, he basically gave me a good deal of information about what the scene was like back then. As an older gentleman, he had first hand eyewitness accounts of such events. So his information is very useful. We give a special thanks to Chris from Long Island, and we hope to hear from you again. Thank you. Before we begin the podcast today, I have decided once again to bring you the news. And these are a few stories that the metal media at large has been covering this week. So if you haven't heard them already, get ready to hear the maledicted spin on these stories. Now, here we go. News voice. In sad news this week, it appears that no one in metal had died. That's right, folks. No one in metal has died last week. Rest in peace to no one. That's a good thing. I've been starting every news segment, every episode so far, with the death of some sort of metal icon, good or bad. But this week, we don't have one, so that's good. It's getting better out there. They're getting healthier. They're not dying yet. So let's continue. Um, the only story we have this week on the news is the grammy award now you know how i feel about the grammy awards i think it's a giant farce it's a giant fraud it's a giant scam it's bullshit i think that we should know better than to even bother even being involved now the grammys are obviously a joke but it appears that mastodon has taken the best metal performance of the year for the grammys um and of course mastodon i i, I have to say they might have been interesting maybe like 18 years ago or so but these days their sound has become so unthreatening in a way i don't know they're just not that interesting anymore i listened to the album the emperor of sand pretty heavily because i do a review on it so i listened to it about 20 times and i really can't say I get anything out of it i don't know what the big deal is about these guys they're, they're really not that good but i guess that's who's gonna win um the metal grammy i believe they gave it to megadeth last year who i would say Deserve such an award, but however, I don't believe it should be a Grammy. I think as metal people, we should have our own awards, or or not even that. Maybe doesn't that sort of uh, counteract the whole purpose of metal to have awards? I don't know. I'm not really for it. Anyway, Mastodon was up against bands such as Code Orange. Now, are you guys familiar with Code Orange? They've seemed to go from nothing to everything in the matter of a few minutes. Uh, uh, Code Orange is what they call today a metalcore band. However, the term metalcore is a little bit misunderstood. And we've got to really clarify this term because it's confusing a lot of people. But however, they call them metalcore because they consider them a combination between hardcore music and metal music. And for some reason, they're really popular. I'm not sure why. I guess that's what makes them bad in a way. They're trying to bring back that 90s beat you up core when they're just a bunch of emo kids from Pittsburgh, really. Ah, Enough. Also nominated was Meshuga. Now these guys are a decent example of Swedish death metal, not American death metal. It's a lot less bloody, it seems. However, they're a little more complicated. They're almost like math metal. They're very precise and digital, and they play a lot of seven-string guitars. Maybe they're even gent today. Maybe they've they've degraded into gent. I, I can't. I've, I saw Meshuga, um, where High on Fire opened for them a few months ago. I really just can't get into that kind of music. And as a photographer, I tried to shoot them, and they used zero light. I had to basically get shots of these guys during the strobes. So that's a count against—that's a um, strike against Meshuga. I have a funny story from Meshuga. Uh, all my life—you know, meshuga has been around for a long time. In my entire life, I was told by a friend of mine that Meshuga was an all-Hasidic Jew band. Uh, they were a, actually a death metal band made comprised of Hasidic Jews— and I I believed this for the longest time until I saw them a few months ago. I was like, and and I would always say, oh, but they're from Sweden. My friend would be like, well, there's Jews everywhere, D- you know, it, it doesn't matter. And, and I'd be like, wow, that that's something, huh? But then when I saw them, I'm like, hey, these guys aren't Hasidic Jews. And you know, I called my friend, and and he was like, yeah, that was that was um, that was a joke. It took me about twelve years to get that joke. So, shame on me. It's easy to trick me sometimes, Maledictus. Sometimes Maledictus is easily tricked into things. But watch out. Sometimes Maledictus might trick you. But not on this show. Everything I say is true. Next, we have uh, Body Count, which I admire their new... It's good to see them back. I, I kind of admire their new um, Suicidal Tendencies cover. Um, but they were nominated for the song Black Hoodie. So, I, I get behind Body Count. It was like Ice-T. Tea. Ice-T. Tea. I like Ice-T, he's good, you know, but like like I said, a band like that should know better than to have anything to do with the Grammys. And some other band called August Burns Red. I have no idea who they are. Are they terrible? Yes? No? Let me know. Tell me about August Burns Red fans at home. Um, Here lies metal at gmail.com. Who are these guys? I'll look them up myself, but that sounds like a bunch of kids that have emo haircuts playing metal, like most metal bands today. Am I right? Now, uh, a little note on the Grammys. We're gonna we're gonna go on a little tangent here, even though this should be the news. Uh, I've always believed that the Grammy Awards are totally a patronizing to the metal genre. You, you know, what I mean by that. Like it's almost like, hey, you guys come to our party with a history of utterly no understanding of or no desire to understand what metal is about. Hence that famous 1989 award with Jethro Tull over Metallica. I mean, that that should have been a sign to abandon that entire award for metal bands, to just boycott the award. that It should have been very clear from that point on, and it hasn't gotten any better. But I do believe that musicians of the Metal Persuasion should boycott this circus from now on. Should have been from then on, but from this point on, if you haven't realized that they don't give a fuck about you, uh, I don't know what you're doing. Maybe you're like, hey, who cares? We got this award. It's good for our careers. Okay. But if I were in that situation, I don't see any benefit in a Grammy award at all. If I were a successful metal band making money, I would want nothing to do with that organization. But think of it like this. Imagine this. You're a metal band, okay? But compare it to this situation. Let it be analogous to this sort of situation. You could all maybe relate to this. Think of yourself as a nerd in high school or a headbanger in high school The kind of People that were not, you know, they, you weren't the cool kids, all right? You weren't the you were the kids everyone made fun of. You were the outcasts, all right? And suddenly out of nowhere, the jocks or the preppies or the cheerleaders invite you to their big bash at their big house in the nice part of town. You know, it was always those kids that had these big houses while their parents were away. They would have these parties, these, these crazy drinking parties. And, you know, you usually weren't invited to them because, you know, you didn't look like them. But do, do, would you even want to be there? Would you, do you even want to go to that party? I, I wouldn't. I, I, I was the headbanger in high school. If they were to suddenly invite me, I don't think I would want to be there. I wouldn't feel comfortable around those people. I mean, think, like, are they inviting you to the party as a joke or to feel for some sort of dare that they had a a wager against their friends or something like that? Or might they just have you there to humiliate you? Think of the Grammys as the same way. I mean, that's what I feel about the Grammys. And I don't feel like, you know, the latter. I don't feel like they're going to treat you as equal. They're kind of like, oh, look at those metalheads. Look, we got them to wear tuxedos today. Ha ha. Isn't that funny? Look what we got them to do. It's not... The mainstream music industry is not for us. It never should be for us. And some metal bands will always be mainstream, but we should sort of make our own mainstream, don't you think? It's okay to be mainstream. I mean, you need to make money doing this, don't you? I agree. I would like to make money playing metal. That would be fine. I have no problem with that. I have no problem for successful metal bands out there like Metallica or Slayer. That's great. But you guys are above the Grammys. You guys are so much better than that bullshit. You don't need an award. You're great already. You don't need to make... Metallica, great again. You're great already. Now, as headbangers, we're expendable, you know? We're expendable in the music industry. That's just fine. It's like when uh, somebody invites you to a party and uh, you don't show up and it doesn't really matter. That's what expendable means. All right, let's move on. That's the news for today. The Grammys, a giant farce. Fuck the Grammys. Who cares? Who cares about Mastodon or Code Orange? Let's move on, people. And now, on with the podcast. Now, this particular podcast will be a historical episode. That means this is about a person, place, or thing that has an important influence on metal and an important influence it is. Today's episode is going to be a historical account of the reign of terror brought upon Essex County, England, not New Jersey, England, of Matthew Hopkins, Witchfinder General, now Obviously, this guy is a major influence on metal, I think. Just his idea, just his persona, just the legend of him, I think, inspired the entire genre, or at least most of the genre of doom metal. Uh, There is a band named after him, Witchfinder General. There's another band called Witchfind. Uh, Cathedral had a song about this particular character. Of course, there was a movie made, and we'll get into that later. So let's begin this podcast, this historical podcast on Here Lies Metal. Here we go. The Year. Is 1645. A great darkness had descended upon England. Civil war, famine, and religious strife plague the island nation, and all of its great human suffering can be traced back to an ancient evil that has preyed on man's wicked desires Satan. A secret society of the most wicked maidens, driven by greed, carnal desires, and their hatred of Jesus has arisen to carry out Satan's evil deeds and unleash Satan's wrath upon the penitent, Puritan, God-fearing Christians of Essex and ultimately the entire earth. These wicked minions live in the shadows. They might be your neighbors, the shopkeeper, the farmer, even your preacher, and possibly even your own family. They have rejected Christ our Lord and conspired with Satan, resulting in the suffering of war, famine, death, that have all befallen God's children. It appears that the four horsemen of the Apocalypse have arrived at our very gates, and our God has abandoned us. We pray for the Lord's salvation to deliver us from this scourge of Satan. God helps those who help themselves, so who ist ye gonna calleth? Matthew Hopkins, Witchfinder General, and his faithful sidekick, Jack Stern, at your service. The name Matthew Hopkins would go down in English history with sinister infamy. The Witchfinder General, a title bestowed upon himself, not unlike the band Manowar declaring themselves kings of metal in modern day, would be remembered for the reign of terror that he and his henchmen brought upon the county of Essex for a short but brutal 14-month period in the years 1645 to 1646. His brutal witch hunt plagued the land, already scarred by civil war and famine, resulting in an impressive pile of corpses 230 deep, achieving a body count with an efficiency that no witch hunt in the past 150 years could rival, It was this sinister merit that had immortalized the legend of Hopkins and his reign of terror that claimed the lives of so many innocents in that year. It might be difficult for some in modern day to enter a frame of reference to the events of 1645, but these were simple times. This was an age of puritanical fanaticism in society at large. Religion was the law. Evil was against the law and punishable by death. Satan was around every corner, and he was trying to tempt mankind to come to his aid against Jesus our Lord and Savior. You might now understand the market for such a man like Matthew Hopkins and his brutal methods to stomp out Satan before he tightened his grip on man and unleashing the hordes from the fiery pits of hell to bring hell upon earth. This was an age of fear and paranoia, an age of ignorance and illiteracy. It would be easy to blame all of this death and misery of a civil war and crop failures, storms and shipwrecks, or any human tragedy on the devil. But since you couldn't see the devil, you would need to blame the next best thing, those people in your village that everyone thought were weird. They must be in league with Satan and therefore they are to blame for all of our misfortunes. I guess things haven't really changed much these days, have they? As the result of a total lack of credible records, it was believed that Hopkins was born in Missley, Essex, in 1619 to James Hopkins and his wife Marie. James, Hop- James Hopkins was the vicar of wenham in suffolk the reason we have any evidence of the existence and merits of hopkins were the result of speculation by the existence of random records in the following years where his name came to be recorded these records included the last will and testament of his father and local church burial records numerous records do in fact exist for his father james primarily due to the fact of his position and well, as a well-respected clergyman. From these records, we do know that James Hopkins had six children, Matthew, possibly the youngest of the brothers who were naturally named after apostles of Christ. It is believed that Hopkins was brought up in a well-to-do family of devoutly religious convictions. As Matthew Hopkins grew older, there was little doubt the future finger man and witch-pricker witch-pricker, had received some form of advanced education due to his level of influence and respect during his future reign of terror upon the county of Essex. It was more than likely that Hopkins was well-versed in the Latin language and law, not to mention the complexities of witchcraft. However, no records of his official education exist. It was more than likely that he was homeschooled for the early stages of his own education. And there we have it, folks. Another victim of homeschooling gone great. That's what happens when you homeschool your kids, people. They turn out to be mass murderers. So it's important that you, you, you know, send your kids to school because it's not about the le- the quality of education. It's about social interactions as a child. You have your kid who hasn't met another child until he's like 12, right? Or, or until he gets to high school or never, right? He's going to grow up to be a psycho killer kind of like Matthew Hopkins. There you go. Proof right here, people. You weird fucking homeschoolers. Get with the program. It was more than likely that Hopkins may have received a formal university education on the European continent, perhaps exciting his interest in witch hunting, as where such practices were in full effect upon the Low Countries. This might explain his lack of records in formal education in England. The earliest evidence of Hopkins' Witch-finding practice occurred at a local tavern in Misley named the Thorn Inn, which most likely was his place of residence, either as a landlord or a tenant. This very structure still stands today, but is not likely the original building from 1640 where Hopkins drafted his future plans as an icon of doom metal. It was at the Thorn Inn where Hopkins developed relationships with the local community elites in both church and state some of which had ties to the highest level of Cromwell's Puritan government in London, validating his self-proclaimed title and authority as a government-appointed witch-pricker. Witch-pricker. Witch-pricker do you want me to use? Witch-pricker hardly know her. Everything was now in place for Hopkins' campaign of terror. A raging civil war, feeding a prevailing mood of uncertainty and fear, tension, and most of all, paranoia. This would be the perfect storm for Hopkins' scheme, and he would exploit this climate for his own financial benefit. It was in 1645 that Hopkins' reign of blood descended upon the land. His official knowledge of witchcraft and all things metal came from such popular titles of the day, such as Demonology by King James. Now, mind you, this was the original manual on witch hunting in England. King James was a Scottish king, and he was known as a philosopher king. Well, by self-proclaimed a philosopher king. However, he wrote the book Demonology to, in a way, you might say, update the original text of the Malleus Maleficarum, which was um, basically a book that said everyone is a witch, or everyone that isn't like you is a witch, and they should be killed. Demonology was... A book based on reason and logic, um, as King James considered himself a man well schooled in law and reason. So um, it was this book that was supposed to actually improve witch hunting and kill less innocent people, perhaps. So this is something that uh, Matthew Hopkins probably didn't really pay much attention to, as there have been times when King James, a known witch hunter himself and a witch prosecutor himself, uh, would actually be reasonable enough to let certain people go instead of just killing everyone brought before him and declaring them a witch. There was a whole history of King James uh, and his trials of supposed witches. This was a very popular thing at the time, being a witch for the past 100 or so years uh, surrounding um, this era in 1645. Witch hunting was just whatever what everyone, what was it was the fad, but only it lasted like 100 years or so, and a lot of people died. So King James wrote the book on demonology, which Matthew Hopkins was inspired by to hunt witches. He thought he knew everything. He read some book and he thought he knew everything about witch hunting. Another book he read was The Wonderful Discovery of Witches in the County of Lancaster by Thomas Potts. Now, Hopkins was totally prepared for his new career in the booming industry of witch hunting. Naturally, he needed a target. And of course, the easier the target, the better. Such criteria to look for in an easy target would include someone publicly despised, ugly, lonesome, reclusive, preferably disabled, and most importantly, a freak. Hopkins, with his trusty sidekick of who which he made an acquaintance of at the Thorn Inn, Jack Stern, had just the victim to begin their murder spree. Elizabeth Clark was an easy target indeed. She was eighty years of age, considered absolutely ancient in the year 1645, where most people died around thirty. In addition to her unnatural extended existence upon God's cruel earth, in addition to her unnatural extended existence upon God's cruel earth, Clark had only one leg, and to add icing to Clark's despicable despicable shitcake of an existence, her own mother was tried and executed for witchcraft decades earlier. Talk about having it bad did i mention she was an easy target oh and obviously the town folks of misley hated and feared this old fossil therefore so few protested her accusations clark was apprehended in jails on suspicion of witchcraft she was then subject to enhanced interrogation as then like now torture was illegal naturally Clark had been encouraged to confess her crimes as a result of Hopkins' unique brand of humane methods of information extraction. He later wrote about his first victim, victim in a pamphlet titled, The Discovery of Witchcraft. And it went something like this. I'm going to do the, the, the Matthew Hopkins voice now, right? In March of 1644, he had some seven or eight of, the, of that horrible sect of witches living in the town where he lived a town in Essex called Manningtree, with diverse and other adjacent witches of other towns who, every six weeks in the night, being always on the Friday night, had their meeting close to his house and had seen solemn sacrifices there offered to the devil, one whom this discoverer heard speaking to her imps and bid them to go to another witch who thereupon was apprehended. Together with his loyal sidekick and boy wonder Jack Stern, they had subjected the Clark to most humane methods of enhanced interrogation, such as stripping the accused naked, searching for any marks which would be identified as teats, where animal familiars and satanic imps would suckle their reward in blood from the witch. These teats were then poked and prodded, or pricked, hence the name Witch Pricker, Clark just so happened to have three of these demon receptacles on her body in which Hopkins quotes was found to have three teats about her which no honest woman would have. Kept with no food nor drink for three nights Clark naturally confessed to being in league with Satan and revealed the names of five other women in her witch coven. She also confessed of her satanic animal familiars in which Clark kept and nourished with her own blood. Names of the familiars were just too ridiculous to make up, and Hopkins himself agreed. As he claims, names that no mortal can invent. Get this. These animals were called Holt, a white kitten. Oh, cute. Holt the white kitten. Jamara, a fat spaniel. Sack and Sugar, a black rabbit. News, a polecat. What's a polecat? And Vinegar Tom, A long-legged greyhound with a head like an ox. Broad eyes and a long tail. What a strange-looking animal. No wonder why they thought it was satanic. During the eventual trial of Elizabeth Clark, who was charged with entertaining evil spirits, Hopkins gave this disposition in court. The said Elizabeth forthwith toad informant, and one Mr. Stern, they are present. If they would stay and do the said Elizabeth no hurt, she would call one of her white imps and play with it on her lap, but this informant told her they would not allow it. And they, staying there while longer, the said Elizabeth confessed she had carnal copulation with the devil six or seven years. And he would appear to her three or four times a week at her bedside and go to bed with her and lie with her in half a night together. The shape of proper gentleman with laced band having the whole proportion of a man. And he would say to her, Bessie, I must lie with thee. And she never did deny him. So she's doing it with the devil and... You know how Puritans feel about doing it with the devil. They don't like it. And they're going to have to put you on trial. And they're probably going to hang you or set you on fire now because you did it with the devil. No doing it with the devil. Following the resulting spike in local fear and paranoia brought upon by the torture and incarceration of Elizabeth Clark, Hopkins and Stern didn't have a lot of trouble coercing the locals to give up even more names of people they were not fond of essentially snowballing this sudden uptrend in witch mania among the terrified and illiterate populace. Expanding his operation, Hopkins and Stern expanded their ranks, assembling what appears to be a witch-finding dream team, including Mary Goody Phillips, whose, special, whose speciality was finding witch marks on the bodies of those accused, while Edward Parsley and Francis Mild made up the rest of the team. We're not sure what they did. Maybe they just carried the gear around did some roadies. You know, so he had a couple of guys with him. From this point on, Hopkins would exclaim, Witch pickers assembled! Upon the sight of the bright beacon flashed in the sky whenever local witch activity was reported by the helpless authorities. This was a job for Matthew Hopkins, Witchfinder Jennifer, and his furious band of witch pickers. Upon the merry band of witch pickers' ongoing crusade to vanquish all forms of Satan from the countryside... Over a hundred more people would be named, all of who would confess rather promptly, ever increasing the snowball effect of suspects at, at, at an exponential rate. At this point, in his brief but effective, not to mention lucrative, career of witch hunting, Hopkins and friends were riding high on their recent merits. Hopkins would openly advertise his services under the title Witchfinder General and that he and his Justice League were by special commission from Parliament to rid the country of evil witches once and for all. Capitalizing on a fanatical society of Puritans, and you know how Puritans get. I mean, is it really any different today? Uh, We have psychotically religious people all over the world that are really just as irrational as they were in 1645. Has anything really changed, there are people just as ridiculous. And I'm sure in some places you can be burnt as a witch. And that's right here in America. Has it changed much? I'm, I'm not sure. We have some pretty crazy people who invest their entire lives in the belief of a fairy tale. We, we have to move on as mankind. That's That's my little editorial for this. Combined with the fear and uncertainty of a society in turmoil and in the throes of civil war, Hopkins was naturally a busy man. By now... It was no secret that Hopkins was not hunting witches for reason of devout faith and hatred of the devil, or as a steadfast defender of order and virtue, upholding Puritan Christian values and combating Satan wherever he might appear, to save mankind from certain doom of hellfire. This shrewd and entrepreneurial Hopkins, driven by the anglo saxon Christian work ethic, you know, those really annoying waspy people that you can't stand, was doing this for a profit. Killing was his business, and business was good, one might say. More of a con man than a virtuous knight in shining armor sent by God to deliver man from the ravages of, of Satan. Hopkins's racket was to collect local gossip, likely at his residence, the Thorn Inn, twist and embellish these tales into official accusations, apprehensions, interrogations, confessions, show trials, guilty verdicts, and ultimately executions, where Hopkins would conveniently receive a quid bonus each time a witch went to the gallows. Not bad. As Hopkins' witch-finding service became more prominent, new and colorful methods of enhanced interrogation were devised, methods that might elevate public engagement, therefore acting as entertainment for mostly illiterate peasantry and ultimately promoting his booming trade of witch finding. This new public spectacle was known as swimming, and it went something like this The accused would be bound and thrown into a body of water. And you might have guessed how the results were determined. If you floated, and most humans do, but I, maledictus, by the way, do not float, because I am so metal, I sink. I am incapable of floating so I might have been set free as a non-witch imagine that anyway if you floated you were obviously a witch and if you sank like I would you were innocent but you also died well (laughs) at least I would be spared a pricking session no pricking for maledictus swimming wasn't actually a method invented by Hopkins however Hopkins did formulate a method to make it more torturous, unpleasant, and painful by tightly binding the accused into an uncomfortable, contorted position as they were lowered into the water. I I told you, Hopkins was pretty damn metal. As the bodies piled up and Hopkins' bank account swelled, Hopkins' Christ Superstar felt unstoppable. He and his merry band of witch finders were still gleaming in the fame received from their successful Clemsford trials, where nearly 30 suspected witches were executed. However, it was Hopkins' next victim that would push his witch-pricking party over the edge and ultimately bring on the downfall and demiles of the Hopkins, of Hopkins in his reign of terror. His name was John Lowes, and he was the minister of Brandenson. That's right. This guy was a man of the cloth. However, the seven-year-old pastor was not necessarily well revered by his own congregation. In fact, they deemed him as a carmunjous old fossil, and they wanted him gone. And what better way to make your enemies disappear than to summon Essex's premier paranormal investigator, witch finder, witch pricker, and torturer, <clears throat> I mean advanced interrogator. Who is to gonna calleth? Upon his arrest and interrogations, where the frail old preacher was subject to sleep deprivation, where the accused would be run in circles backwards and forwards about his cell until exhaustion. This method of interrogation would be repeated for days on end until the accused would confess, and confess did he. It went a little something like this He had covenanted with the devil, suckled familiars. We have some more names. Tom, Flo, Bess, and Mary for five years and had bewitched cattle, whatever that involved. What does it involve? How do you bewitch cattle? Are the cattle in the Candlemask video where Masai Marklin's like, you are bewitched, and the cattle's like, "Mm -hmm." maybe that's how you do it. But anyway, that's what this guy was doing. He was pointing at cows, and he was going, you are bewitched. He had also caused a ship to sink off Harwich on calm sea with the loss of 14 lives. Imagine that shit. They thought this guy caused a shipwreck. Unbelievable. A later pamphlet by Stern states that Lowe's was joyful to see what power his imps had. Lowe's later retracted his his confession, but this didn't save him. And since he was not allowed a clergyman, to read the burial service for him. He recited it himself on his way to the scaffold on the 27th of August, 1645. So he had to read his own death sermon as he was hanged. Very nice. Most likely the result of desperate ravings of a tortured and exhausted 70-year-old, none of which was even remotely factual, this statement was taken as evidence, despite the fact there, of there existing no evidence of such of a shipwreck even. He basically just said, yeah, this ship sunk and 14 people died. He did it. He bewitched some cattle and the fucking ship sank. I totally did. And they were like, oh, right, I guess you're right. And the ship sank. Hang him. With over 200 suspects incarcerated in awaiting trial and being subjected to horrific treatment, including an actual ordained minister, it wasn't long before the actual people in charge in London began to take notice. Local authorities began to question Hopkins' claim of appointment by Parliament in an appointment in which he likely completely fabricated. I am Witchfinder General. Yes, that's what it says here. I, I was appointed by the people in London. I am the king of metal, damn it. I am the king of witchfinding. That's me, totally. That's basically what he did. And they were like, witchfinder? What? We don't have such a title. There's no such title. This guy just fucking made this shit up. Foreseeing his eventual demise at the hands of the increasingly victorious pro-royalist rebels, Hopkins had doubled his efforts to expedite as many executions before his scam was revealed. So basically, there was a civil war going on. It was the royalists versus the non-royalists. I know you think royalists are annoying, but the non-royalists were these Puritans and they were really fucking annoying. So those are the same people that basically were kicked out of England, and they came here, and they formed America. Ah, now now you know why um, things are the way they are. That's why there's no fucking bare boobs on TV, because Puritans, people, they still have an influence in this country. They're still out there. They're still running things. Maybe they'll all die one day. Anyway, let's continue. It was at this stage, the very height of Hopkins' influence and fame, where it would all come crashing down as suddenly as it began. It wasn't too long before local authorities began to question his brutal methods and speak out against his exploits, quickly turning a fearful mob against Hopkins and his followers. By 1646, the hunter now became the hunted. The pricker now became the pricked. Hopkins had pushed it too far. He had pricked too much. His greed and brutality had eventually backfired, and he had no choice but to disband his merry men and retreat back to his hometown in Mistley. He ran home to mommy. He was like, "Oh shit, my thing is on un- my scheme is uncovered. I better get the fuck out of here." So he took off his little hat and got into civilian clothes and ran home back to the uh, back to the Thorn Inn. And just had a beer. He was like, "Oh, me? I'm not Matthew. I'm just you know, I'm just some guy here drinking a beer." I'm just some guy drinking a beer here at the end. I'm just drinking a point then. I'm witch hunting. I no, not know about witch pricking. I've just been here all along. He ran away. He disappeared. The reign of terror unleashed by the ruthless yet entrepreneurial witch finder Matthew Hopkins only 14 months prior in which over 230 suspected witches, mostly women were brutally tortured and executed, not to mention the hundreds of more that were wrongfully imprisoned, had vanished overnight like it never happened. In conclusion, the actual fate of Hopkins following his downfall remains a mystery. One account states that in a miraculous and vindicating case of poetic justice, Hopkins was himself accused of witchcraft while passing through Suffolk. He was allegedly charged with having stolen a book listing all of the witches in England, and obtain such a tome by the means of sorcery. And you know how we feel about sorcery here in Puritan land. Sorcery means we burn you. He was then summarily set upon by an angry mob, not unlike the very angry mobs that he and his cohorts used to ignite. He was then subject to his own unique interrogation method of swimming. <laughs> Ain't payback a bitch, Maddie some accounts state that Hopkins did not float, like Maledictus. And he drowned. While others claim that he did float and was condemned to hang. Wouldn't that be a bitch if this is what happened to him? He's walking, he's running home, he's like, eh, I'm not a witch finder. Like, look, a witch. He's like, Me, no, I'm not a witch, no, it's not me, then. And they just put him on they 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 dumped him in the water. He's like, No, I don't float, no, it's not me. And then, you know, by the end of the day he's hanged. That's what happens. Shit happens, Matthew Hopkins. However, no more records of Hopkins appear to exist following 1647, likely confirming his death that same year. A more likely cause, a more boring and likely cause of death, um, was most likely revealed by his surviving faithful sidekick, Jack Stern, who claimed, in his own account of events, a confirmation and discovery of witchcraft, in which Stern simply added confirmation to the same title that Hopkins had used previously. So he just took Hopkins' book and said, this is a confirmation of that book, and it's written by me, Jack Stern. Everyone like me now. Everyone hit the like button. It's a confirmation of the discovery of witchcraft. That was uh, what people used to do back then. You know, that's how people just stole each other's posts back then. That's basically what he did. Either way, Stern had stated that Hopkins had passed away peacefully, after a long sentence of consumption. A likely cause of death, as most old-timey people seem to die of consumption by the age of 30 back in those days. He died of consumption. It says on those old gravestones, it says, Died of consumption. What is consumption? Anyway, I think it's tuberculosis. Either way, he died pr- pretty young. He was probably in his 30s when he died. He didn't last long. A loose record of his burial was identified and simply reads, Matthew Hopkins... Son of Mr James Hopkins minister of Wenham was buried at Misley August 12 1647 however it is not known where Hopkins remains actually lie despite a brief 14 month of fame and notoriety there is no doubt that Hopkins left behind any mortal legacy still celebrated today especially in the world of doom metal which we'll do an episode on. We're gonna do an episode on doom metal soon, people. I know you all want the episode on doom metal. We're gonna do doom metal with such bands as new wave British heavy metal doom bands like Witchfinder General and Witchfind. The dark and brutal era and culture of the witch hunt would inspire numerous doom metal bands nearly 400 years into the future. Um, this would also be uh, there would also be a title of a song by Cathedral. In their Forest of Equilibrium, uh, I believe it's a Forest of Equilibrium album called Matthew Hopkins, Witchfinder General, where they had taken excerpts and sound bits from the movie we're about to talk about. And you all know the legend of Matthew Hopkins would also inspire this particular B-grade torture exploitation film in 1968 titled The Conqueror Worm after a poem by Edgar Allan Poe. This film, featuring the legendary horror icon Vincent Price, who would portray the anti-hero Matthew Hopkins, appeared to me marginally accurate based on the accounts of Hopkins' real-life exploits that we just read. I mean, for the most part, there was a lot of embellished things, but you could identify some characters in the movie that occurred in the story we just wrote. Of course, they made it a little more, you know, interesting. They put a love triangle in there, you know, a couple of things like that, but anyway, uh, this is essentially a, a, a torture porn movie, if uh, you call it. Where Price portrays Hopkins as a crooked and corrupt sexual deviant, well versed in the art of hypocrisy. Hopkins eventually finds justice at the movie's end, where he and his sidekick Stern are summarily and brutally butchered by a vengeful soldier, <laughs> who filled the obligatory role as the handsome and righteous leading man in the film. I forget who it was. I guess they figured that quietly dying of consumption was a bit too boring for the end of this film. Anyway, that's the story of Matthew Hopkins, Witchfinder General. Now, what is the moral of this story? Moral of the story is if you bullshit people, you will eventually get caught and you will be dunked and hanged. So it's about honesty. It's about taking advantage of your power. And it's about being a Puritan. Don't be a fucking Puritan, people. There are no witches. There are no witches. There are just some goths out there that pretend they're witches. And they're pretty silly. And they don't deserve to be burnt, okay? They're silly people. They want to be witches. They want to pretend they're witches. There is no reason to burn them. And I'm talking to everyone. I'm talking either you don't like witches or you're a religious fanatic. No one deserves to be burnt these days. Unless you're into, like, gent music or something. Maybe you should be set on fire. That is the moral of the story, people. Do not, do not find witches... Do not kill innocent people. Do not set them on fire for being different. And that's what this is all about. These people were different. They looked different. They were the, they were the uncool people in society. That's who were the witches were. It wasn't like the hot people. It wasn't the good looking people. It wasn't the rich people. They were not accused of being witches. It was the poor weird people that were missing legs that were accused of being witches and they were set on fire. Today it would be the metalheads. It'd be you and me. They'd be burning us. Of course, I wouldn't float. So I might have a way out, you know, if I didn't drown. I'd be like, well, he's not a witch, is he? He looks like a damn witch, but, you know, he listens to all kind of, like, that metal music. He's into some really fucked up music. Plays some really loud guitar. He must be a witch, but then I wouldn't float. So they're like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? How can he not float? I just don't float, people. I've tried. I just sink. I sink in the water. I'll sink in fucking seawater. I'm just made of metal. I'm made of stone. I'm dense. So I don't float. All right, let's wrap this thing up. I want to thank everyone again for listening, especially Chris out there. And be sure to follow us on social media, and that includes Twitter at Here Lies Metal, Facebook at Here Lies Metal, Instagram at Metal Lies Here, and Gmail at HereLiesMetal at gmail.com. Give us a shout out, talk to us, ask us questions, give us suggestions for shows. And be sure to subscribe to hear lies metal on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And don't forget to rate us, even if you hate us. If this podcast sucks, only you have the power to destroy me, maledictus. And I challenge you to a fight. So keep on listening to metal, folks. Now, I'm glad um, y'all came and listened to this podcast about metal history. Like I said, we're gonna do we're gonna do podcasts about everything, really, not just playlists. And I know the playlists are fun. But we're going to do podcasts about people in metal people that seem significant in the history of metal maybe people that inspired metal songs or an entire genre matthew hopkins is a good example of that you could say he invented doom metal you know because all the doom metal guys ever sing about are witches and things like that we're burning witches for the most part i mean depending what kind of doom metal we're talking about that seems to be the basic uh that was the basic theme especially of early doom metal you know, the skies that came after Black Sabbath, that was really their main theme, is witches and burning witches and witchfinders, things like that. So that's why we used Matthew Hopkins. He was always, to me, he was always in my mind in metal ever since I heard the Cathedral song, Witchfinder, uh, Matthew Hopkins, Witchfinder General, which is a pretty good song by Cathedral, who would be almost like a third generation doom metal band. We'll do, like I said, we'll do an episode on specifically a doom metal. We're gonna do a doom metal playlist for you all pretty soon. Now, once again, it is my passion to bring you, the listener, these tales of metal. However, if you'd like to support the show, your donations are highly appreciated, and you can find me at Patreon forward slash here lies metal. Give a quarter, give a dollar, give five dollars, give a hundred dollars, give six zillion dollars to Maledictus, and he will thank you greatly he will dedicate the show he will do an episode on you on specifically you and how you changed metal that's that's the award they give they, they have usually an award system on patreon that's your reward you're getting your own episode i swear i will do research on you i will ask the nsa about everything they know about you and i'll do an episode on you because you are metal so that's the podcast for today folks and wonder what we should do next week i will consult my coven of metal enthusiasts and we will have some kind of cool episode i think we'll go maybe maybe we'll go back to a playlist like i i know you guys are responding well to the playlists i know you like playlists because there's music in it I, i show you guys music that maybe you never heard or songs maybe you haven't heard so and i do a lot of research i go pretty in depth into the whole world of the particular playlists that i'm doing so i know i will make you guys a good playlist Either way, suggest me things, send me things, send me email, send me your ideas. I want to hear what you guys think about this show. We already have some people doing that, and we're very thankful for them. So I want you guys to talk to me and tell me what you think about Here Lies Metal. So that's all for today, folks. Thank you very much again for listening. I am once again your host for all eternity, Maledictus, and I will see you again next week. Have a good one. Goodbye.